And Lord, I thank you for everyone here that's online, Lord. We thank you for this, uh, this ability of technology that we have, that we can be in different places and actually be sharing together and hearing together and enjoying your word together. We thank you for that privilege, Lord. Father, your word says that the, the, it's the entrance of your word um, that gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So we come to you with a simple heart. And we thank you for just opening up our hearts, each one of us here, Lord. Opening our hearts, Lord, to just receive a word that will bring light for our path and the journey you have for us, Lord. We thank you, Father. <clears throat> Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to try to share something here. This is a little bit different for me. I'm not used to uh, working without visuals, and I'm, uh, but uh, this is going to be a challenge. But the, the word that I, I would like, I just feel to share on is, is um, taken from Psalms 119 and verse 165. Psalms 119 and verse 165. And <clears throat> This verse was shared with us just a few, probably about a month or so ago, and it, it, it really kind of uh, touched my wife and I when we heard it. And, well, let me just read it to you. Psalms 119 and verse 165. In the King James, it says this, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Let me just read that again. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. In the New American Standard Version, it says, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. And, you know, there's a lot of situations that we find ourselves in in life, and... I think the word offense would be the word that I would like to use to, to title those things in our lives. Now, we often use the word offense. We use the word offense to describe our maybe relationship horizontally. And there's a lot of offenses that we can oftentimes get one with another. And that's one thing. In fact, at one time Jesus was talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 17 in verse 1, he is telling his disciples, he says, you know, it's, in, it's, in, it's inevitable that offenses will come, but woe unto them through whom they come. And then he goes on saying that, that uh, when people come to you and they trespass against you in one way or another, he says you need to forgive them seven times in a day. And if he comes back seven times, you still need to forgive. And the disciples, that their, immediately, their immediate response to Jesus was, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> so they, they realized this, there's a lot of offenses that come our way in life. Jesus says it's inevitable that offenses should not come. It's impossible to go through life without having offenses of different kinds. And sometimes those offenses are related directly with people we're dealing with. But many times they're just offenses or situations in life that really can cause us to stumble. Um, 
in that verse in Psalms 119, in the King James, it says, nothing shall offend them. And the New American Standard Version says, nothing shall cause them to stumble. So the word stumble, something that causes us to stumble, trip up, offenses, there are a lot of situations in life that can present a stumbling block to us. But the key that David tells us there in Psalms 119, he says, Great peace have they that love thy law. You know, I believe it's possible to go through great offenses and still have great peace. What do you all think about that? Does that sound possible? <laughs> great peace. And that word peace, of course, it's in the Old Testament, the word for peace is actually the word shalom. And shalom has a lot of meaning to it. It doesn't just simply mean peace, but it means completeness, soundness, welfare, health, prosperity, security. Uh, it's, it has to do with well-being. And so when a, when, a, when a Hebrew would say to the other one, in their language, they would say shalom. They weren't just saying just merely peace. They were bringing them a, a greeting of great blessing. Shalom. And David says that it's great shalom that we have when we love God's word. And, you know, throughout, throughout God's word, there's several, or there's many situations, I should say. There are many situations where it was possible to be greatly offended. And we can see people having different reactions to those situations. In fact, it's a tool that the enemy loves to use to get us out of God's will. Offenses are tools that the enemy loves to use to get us out of God's will, to get us out of the place where God really intended us to be blessed in. You know, the word in the Greek for the word offense, in fact, let me just, if we can, just turn over to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, there's an interesting situation here where, starting off with uh, verse 2, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. You know, John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He was, uh, in fact, if you remember in the very beginning when, when Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist leaped inside of Elizabeth's womb at the, at the presence of Mary because Mary was pregnant at that time with Jesus. And so from the very beginning, John was, was called to, to do something great. He was called to announce the way of salvation, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And as great of a ministry as John had, he was imprisoned by King Herod. And in that place of imprisonment, he does something very interesting here. In, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples. And listen to this. He says in verse 3, John wants to ask this question of Jesus, and he sends his disciples to do it. He says, go ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? (laughs) And you wonder, what happened to John? John was the one that was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And Jesus' answer to John was very interesting. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, You go, go ahead and tell John what you hear and see. Tell John what you hear and see. Tell him that the blind are receiving the sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And then he says one final thing in verse 6. Jesus says this as his final word to return back and tell John the Baptist in prison. Jesus says, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What an interesting thing that John, in his situation of being imprisoned, he was probably wondering what happened. I came to prepare the way for Jesus. I baptized him. I announced, I said, behold, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And even some of my own disciples followed after Jesus. And, and, and now here I am in prison and I don't really see anything happening like I thought was going to happen. And that's the key, isn't it? We don't see things the way we think they should be. And John, in that situation, He could have taken great offense, but I believe the words that Jesus gave him were a key. And I don't know what happened when John heard these words. The Bible doesn't tell us. John didn't live much longer. He was uh, beheaded shortly after this. But it's interesting that Jesus said, John, listen, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And there are situations in life that I'm sure each and every one of us uh, here in this phone conversation have, have, uh, have gone through situations that really just don't make sense. Things that happen that don't have any reason, we don't have any rhyme or reason to it. Situations that we wonder, well, why did this have to happen? And, you know, I was reading recently, there's a real interesting book called Case for Faith. Um, some of you may have read it already. Uh, it's, a, it's by Lee Strobel. He's written several books, Case for Christ and Case for a Creator. And this one was called Case for Faith. And there was a real interesting part in this book that I would like to relate uh, here at this point. And in this part of the book, he is interviewing people that are saying, how can there be a God when there's so much evil that takes place in the world? How can a, in fact, the question he brings up in this book, he says, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? Uh, maybe you've ran into someone and you've tried to witness to them and win them to Christ and, and, uh, and uh, trying to, to, to get them to believe in a Savior and their answer back to you may be just that. If, God, if there is a God and he's a good God, why does he allow bad things to happen? And the, the, the idea behind that is either God can do something about the bad things and he doesn't want to, or 
He wants to do something about the bad things that happen and he can't. Or he can't do anything and he also doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> That's the mentality that a lot of people have. If there, if there is a God and if he's a good God, how can bad things happen? And it's a question that sometimes even torments and kind of bothers Christians. Um, in the book, Lee Strobel says it's a question that becomes a fish hook twisted inside of the human heart. And sometimes even as Christians, we wonder, we know God is good. And I think every one of you would say amen to that. We know God is good. We know it because his word says he's good. There's no doubt about that. But there sometimes situations cause us to look up and wonder why. Why has this happened? Why did this take place? And it's easy for us. And I believe that's why Jesus sent this word to John. It's easy for us to take offense at that situation. Well, there's an interesting story that Lee Strobel brings up in his book. And his, the argument that comes up is this, and, and that's the fact that we need to understand God is on a different plane, a different level than we're on. It says in, um, in Isaiah 55, it says that God's ways are so much higher than our ways, even higher than the heavens are above the earth. And that's hard for us to understand when it comes to, to how high, how infinitely wise God is, how much God can see at one time, things God can see that we can't. We're, and, and sometimes from our point of view, we're, we're like John in that prison sometimes and we're wondering, how can this happen? And from our point of view, things are not working out the way we really think that they should. And the real problem with that whole argument, that whole men mentality is we don't see things the way God does. And there's an interesting story that, that's brought up in this book, Case of Faith, and I'll just uh, relate this to you. And he begins by saying, God and man are infinitely greater than, uh, th than we could ever imagine. And then he uses this difference. He says, all of us would agree that man and God are infinitely different, just and even far more so than a human and a bear. God is infinitely greater than man in the same way that in many ways a human is far above the bear. And he says, consider this, a bear is caught in a trap. He's caught in a trap. A hunter finds this bear and sees the state the bear is in, and he feels real great compassion in his heart. He wants to free the bear. That's the only thing. The hunter, with this compassion he feels for this creature, he wants to free the bear. But... He knows that he can't even get close to the bear since the bear would only understand that this is a further attack. The bear would have no understanding that he was trying to be freed and most likely he would lash out at the hunter and hunter would have no way of, of setting him free. So the hunter decides to shoot the bear with a tranquilizer. Well, the moment that tranquilizer enters into the bear, the bear immediately recognizes that as a further attack and gets even more uh, angry and upset and vicious, even though he's trapped in this trap. Then, in order to release tension 
on the spring of that bear trap, that man has to actually push the ball, the pair, he actually has to push the paw of the bear deeper into that trap, causing probably more pain to the bear. But it's the only way to release, the only way to release the bear from that trap. Now imagine this, that bear, if he's still conscious, he's going to feel the additional pain. What is he going to perceive? All he's going to perceive about that hunter is that this man is doing everything possible to make things worse. And surely he would only perceive that man's final horrific act as an act of torture. While the man tries as might as he might to communicate his pure intentions to free the bear, there is absolutely no other way that the bear could think otherwise. Uh, without some supernatural method of communication. And even then, even if somehow we could communicate to the bear that the hunter's trying to help him, once the bear is free, he would probably still attack the hunter <laughs> just because of his very nature. I thought that was a very good analogy of, I guess we could say, between us and God. And we don't realize sometimes the situations that we're in. We see our situation and we, and, we, and we think many times, God, it, it seems like what's happening, what God is allowing to happen is only causing things worse to take place. When in fact, God is right there trying to communicate with us and he's allowing things to happen to release us to a far greater freedom than we could ever have before. So, I thought that was a very good analogy of this. It's, it, we just need to understand, though, that God's ways are so much higher than ours. You know, there's a situation in Genesis that I'm sure we're all aware, uh, we've all read, and that's the story of Joseph. And I can, I, I, every time I read that story, I just have to, uh, just tears in my heart begin to, and well up in my eyes and in my heart, I, just, I see here Joseph going through one hurtful situation after another. Situations that in the situation, it doesn't make any sense. You know, what's beautiful about reading that story for you and I is that we are seeing the whole picture. We already know what's going to happen in the end. So as we're reading what Joseph's going through, we already know what's going to happen in the end, so we're kind of applauding, and, and, and it's not, it doesn't really affect us. But imagine Joseph, he did not know the outcome. Joseph wasn't able to jump over to Genesis chapter 50 and, and see how everything turns out. Joseph, in the midst of that situation, uh, I wonder how he really felt, his brothers turning against him. Even his own mom and dad got upset when he told his two dreams to when he began telling all these dreams he was having. And then he's thrown into a pit. Then he's sold as a slave. And then he's falsely accused and he ends up in prison. Uh, things went just, just went from bad to worse. And in each one of those situations, Joseph could have easily been totally, totally offended. He could have just shaken his fist at God and, and really he could, could have blamed God for the whole thing because 
Think about it. Wasn't it God that gave him the dreams to begin with? Had God not given him those two dreams, his brothers, maybe they wouldn't have been quite as upset as they were at that point in time. And Joseph could have shaken his fist at God and said, God, why are you allowing this? You've given me, you gave me dreams. I believed in those dreams. I believed in them so much that I told them to my parents. I told them to my my brothers, thinking that they would rejoice with me about this. And things just turned out the opposite. In those dreams, I saw myself in a position of, of authority and, and a, a position, a, a lifted up position. And now I find myself in the bottom of a pit. Now I find myself in prison, falsely accused. But you know, Joseph didn't do that. And Joseph believed God. And I think one of the most beautiful things, one thing I would like to say is that I know, I know Disney came out with a very nice uh, movie. I think it was called uh, the, some, a movie about Joseph. And uh, the one part in that movie that I really kind of disagree with is whenever Joseph's brothers appear before Joseph in the end of the movie. And it's, it, the movie portrays Joseph as getting real angry when he sees his brother. And then also in this same movie, it's Joseph's wife that says, oh, no, they're your family. You shouldn't be upset like that. Well, I have to really disagree with that part of the movie. I don't see it like that at all. I think Joseph understood and he could see, especially at this point in time, he was beginning to see the bigger picture. He was beginning to see that God had his hand in this like he had never seen before. And as Joseph saw his brothers coming, of course, I believe one of the things he tried to do was to see if had there been a change in his brothers and the whole deal with it, having them bring their youngest brother and that whole situation uh, was it's a very unique story. But in the end, when Joseph's father, Jacob, dies, Joseph's brothers begin to shake and tremble. They're afraid now. What's Joseph going to do with us now that our father's dead? He's surely going to kill us all for how mean we were to him. And so they all came, you know, probably on their hands and knees. Joseph, please, we just want to make sure you've forgiven us. And I think Joseph just began laughing. I think he just, I think he just laughed and laughed. You know, I think that he looked at his brother and he said, you guys, you guys really don't get it, do you? God meant it for good. He meant it for absolute good. He allowed this to happen. Because God has a greater, a much greater picture in mind, a much larger picture in mind than we could ever see while we're under our circumstances, when we get above our circumstances, we begin to sit in heavenly places and see things from God's perspective. We can see how wonderfully God has orchestrated every detail in our life. And Joseph told his brothers, he said, you meant it, you meant it out of meanness. You meant it. You meant to be mean to me. You meant evil. But God But God, that's a good expression, isn't it? But God 
meant it for good. <clears throat> God meant it to God meant it for good <clears throat> that he might save save us. <clears throat> and if we look if we step back from that whole story in Genesis what we see what we see there is that God was bringing all of Jacob's family, all the Israelites, all of Joseph's family into Egypt. God was bringing all the Israelites, all the family, the tribe of Israel into Egypt to be able to preserve them. And it's a beautiful story. Then, of course, how God brought them out of Egypt. <coughs> but those verses in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, the word in the New Testament, the word in the, in the Greek language in the New Testament for the word offense is a very interesting word. It's the word scandalon. Scandalon. That's a Greek word for the word offense in the New Testament. And the word scandalon I'm sure you're probably you can recognize uh, an English word that comes that that comes from that word that Greek word and that's the word scandal, <laughs> and the actual word scandalon is is very unique. It's it literally refers. See if I can explain this properly. If you th go back to that bear trap we were talking about, think of a bear trap that has its the jaws of that bear trap are open. They're set by the hunter. And in the middle of that bear trap, there's like a little plate. It's a trigger. And on that little plate or trigger of that bear trap, that's where the hunter puts the bait. And of course, once the bear reaches in to get the bait and his hand touches the plate or that trigger that the that the bait is on, the trap immediately closes and the bear is caught. The word scandalon literally refers to that trigger of the trap. It's that trigger of the trap. And I think that's a very good word picture for us to, to, to get a hold of because the devil... He Bible says in, in it says in uh in Proverbs that he hunts for the precious life. He hunts for the precious life. And many times situations that we go to, we situations we find ourselves in, they're like that trap. And we need to be very careful that when we're in such situations where we feel offended, whether it's by people around us or by life's situations, we feel offended somehow. What we need to be very careful is that we do not touch the scandal on or we do not take the bait or go after the bait that the enemy has in the center of that trap. 
The devil would love to trap us up. You know, there's a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy in chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says here that that it's possible to be ensnared or trapped by the devil. In verse 26, of course, it's talking about how we need to be with gentleness. We need to help those that are in such situation. Verse 20, let me start in verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those that are in opposition or those that are in a situation like this, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 26 says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That when a person reaches in that trap and touches the scandal on or the trigger of that trap and, and tries to get that bait and goes after the bait that the enemy's laid there. And you know, sometimes revenge can be the bait that the enemy places. Sometimes in, in our times of offense, especially when it's dealing with other people, we can be offended with other people. Right there in that, trap, that large bear trap, there's a piece of meat there that's ha that I would relate directly to the idea of wanting to get revenge. And sometimes revenge seems like something very sweet. If we could just get them back for what they did to us. Well, that's a snare of the enemy. Revenge, revenge never, Bible says, vengeance is, revenge is mine, says the Lord. That belongs to the Lord. And when we try to avenge ourselves of a situation, it will never turn out the right way. It'll become a trap. It'll become a snare to us. And it says here, not only that, but this snare of the devil means once a person, especially think when, when if the enemy, if the devil can trap a Christian in this trap of, of wanting to get revenge or, or, or allowing the offense to be unresolved in their lives. And they go after that bait and they get caught in that snare of the devil. It says that he holds them captive to do his will. And one of the, th one of the things that happens when offenses, when we allow offenses to take a hold of our life, we allow the jaws of that trap to clamp in on us. What happens is that we can actually be taken out of the way, out of God's will, and miss the very blessing that God has for us. There's a situation in Genesis, and Genesis chapter 13, and it's concerning Abraham and Lot. And if you remember, Abraham and Lot they they had traveled into the land of Canaan together. Lot was Abram's nephew. Uh, Abram's brother had died, and his brother's name was Haran. He had died, and so Abraham took Lot with him. And Lot 
was a partaker of the things that God was speaking to Abram, all the blessings God was giving to Abram. A lot was right there, and he was receiving that blessing. He was receiving that blessing with Abram. But in Genesis chapter 13, there was so much blessing, and God had increased Abram and Lot so much. It says in verse 6, in, in Genesis 13, verse 6, it says, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Then it explains why they couldn't stay together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And verse 8, Abram says to his nephew Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. And he literally offers lots. And this is, you have to understand that uh, here God has given Abram the land. He said, this land is yours. Walk in it. It's yours. But he's saying to Lot, listen, Lot, we, we, this is not working out for us to be together. So since it's not working out, you go ahead and choose whatever you want from this land. You can go that way. And if you go that way, I'll go this way. Well, if you remember the story, Lot, it says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where he ended up living. And we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But that situation of strife that brought a division between Abram and Lot it was something that was unresolved. And whereas Lot could have been partaker of all the blessings that he had while with Abraham, those blessings were no longer to be his. And we know that the end of Lot wasn't, wasn't the best. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. His wife turned back and turned to a pillar of salt and other situations that just made uh, his whole life a life of disgrace. You know, the enemy loves to use strife whether it's between people, and I, I want to make it clear this, not just strife between people, but sometimes in our own walk with the Lord, where there's that situation where we feel like we're offended with our situation. And many times that the, the devil, he's right there, he's put the bait there, and he wants us to take it because he knows if we reach in and grab it, then we're captive. Like it says in Second Timothy 2, we become captive to be taken at, by him to do his will. And what a sad situation to be in. Um, God does not want that for us at all. We need to be very careful. When offenses come, when situations come that we don't understand, we need to make sure that we're, we're keeping our heart tender before the Lord, keeping our heart soft before the Lord. You know, God has ways of dealing with Areas of our life that sometimes we don't see very clearly. If you go to 1 Kings in chapter 5. In 1 Kings chapter 5. There's an interesting situation with uh, a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman. Naaman had a problem. He was a mighty man. He was a king. And, I'm sorry, he was a, 
He was the uh, captain of the king's army. And it actually says God, the Lord had helped him to do things. Now, this was a captain of an of a, of a army that was not part of Israel at all. It was a heathen nation that he was a part of. But he was a captain. It says, by him, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. So somehow God had actually helped this man. And so in 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, you can see there in verse 1, Naaman is the captain of the host of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. So Naaman had some real needs in his life. And he had a little servant girl who was an Israelite. She was actually had been captured, I guess, in one of their battles. And she was there as a, as a servant in Naaman's household. And this little servant girl became a wonderful witness to uh, Naaman. She said to Naaman, she says, if only you knew about the God of Israel and what he could do for you. He said, uh, there's, um, there's a prophet in Samaria. Look in verse 3. She said unto she said, would, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover, of, recover him of his leprosy. Well, that's all, that's all good. The only problem is uh, whenever Naaman sent to see if the prophet would be able to deliver him, actually Naaman and his whole army, they went to visit Elisha, the prophet, and look what happens in this situation. It says in verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 5, it says in verse 9, it says, So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him and said, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. So Naaman has taken a whole procession of his army and horses and chariots, and he's coming. This is a great man, a, a, a mighty man, it says, well-known man, a famous man. And he goes up to the house of this prophet Elisha. Uh, that was humbling enough for him because uh, Elisha was, was an Israelite, a Hebrew. And, and he's there at the door, and Elisha, the prophet, does not even answer the door. Imagine that. He doesn't even answer the door. Naaman is there at the door waiting to see this mighty prophet. He has Naaman has all of his soldiers all dressed. I'm sure they were all in their, their, their wonderful uh, outfits and their horses and chariots. And he's all there to see this prophet. And Elisha does not even come to answer the door. He sends his servant down to talk to Naaman. And then his servant says, go into the river of Jordan and wash seven times and you'll be clean. <laughs> Naaman, you can imagine how he felt. Well, it says very clearly here in verse 11, Naaman was angry. He was wroth. And he sent away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over this place and, and recover the leper. He was expecting Elisha to do some great thing because that's the way he saw himself in life as some great person. 
and this was just way beneath him to be dealt with in this matter. And it goes on, and basically, Naaman was ready to turn back and forget the whole thing. He was willing, imagine this, he was willing to remain a leper rather than humble himself and do what the servant told him to do. Fortunately, Naaman had a servant. It says in verse 13, one of his servants came near and said and spoke unto him, my father, this is verse 13 of 2 Kings 5. He said, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. <laughs> With those few words, Naaman somehow was able to humble himself. He realized the foolishness of his pride. And he went down. And I'm sure every time going under that water, in Naaman's mind, he's wondering, what's going to happen here? Am I really, is this really going to happen? Or is this, am I just being totally humiliated by, by, uh, by this prophet that won't even come and talk to me? Well, sure enough, when he came up the seventh time, he was completely healed. You see, Naaman could have been offended. He was offended. He could have allowed that offense to keep him from receiving the very blessing of healing that is really what he needed. And so God has unique situations he puts us in. Situations that deal with areas of our life sometimes we're just not aware of. Like, like that bear, the Lord's trying to set us free from something, and like that bear, maybe... You know, we'd like to lash out. I'm sorry, is someone? <laughs> Let me take you to the one more story in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. Is everybody still there? Okay, okay. Yeah. If anyone needs to put their mute button on, they can, that would help out a little bit. Okay. Okay, good, 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 good. All right. <laughs> All right, good, good, good. All right. Just wanted, I thought maybe somebody was asking a question. I want to take you to, to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15. Here's an interesting story in the New Testament. And again, you know what we began, the verse I began sharing with in the, in the beginning from Psalms, it says, uh, Great peace have they that love thy law. You know, taking time in God's word, there's all kinds of little treasures like this throughout God's word that can help us understand how to deal with offenses. And some of these things are, are hidden in the, in, in the text of other scriptures, and sometimes it's not always easy to see, but God has given us this wonderful word of life that we can study, we can love, we can cherish, we can take to our heart, we can memorize, we can enjoy. And, and, and His word is life for us. And 
when we love his law, he helps us maintain great shalom, great peace, even when there are great offenses, great stumbling blocks. Here's a situation, too, that it seems really kind of unfair that someone would be treated like this. Uh, in fact, I think this situation, if it happened in any of our churches, uh, boy, I, I, can, I can just see now the, the headlines of a newspaper saying how rude this pastor was in this church and how, how nasty he was with people in his church. And it could be a, it could be a real scandal to use that, that word we were talking about. It could be a real scandal about us. But you know, this is a situation that took place and, and, and Jesus is the one it seems to deal with someone very unfairly. Let's find out what it is here. In Matthew chapter 15, if we go to uh, verse 22, Matthew 15 and verse 22, it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts, and she cried unto Jesus, saying, Have mercy on me. O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And it says in verse 23, Jesus answered her not a word. <laughs> what, a, what a strange situation. He didn't even answer her. And I believe this is written in scripture for us to take note of. Sometimes, sometimes it feels like there's not a word from heaven for our situation. There's not, e not even one word we can get that helps us make sense out of our situation. But again, we have to understand, we have to sit, step back and see the story in a different way. We got to step back out of our situations, out of our circumstances, and allow God to show us a bigger picture. And goes on here in verse it says in verse 23 he answered her not a word and then it says his disciples came and besought him saying send her away for she crieth after us now of course the natural situation here is that this woman was not a jew she was a canaanite and uh the attitude of jews and that dispensation towards towards anybody else from any other nation as they looked down upon that any other nationality looked down on them and actually referred to them as dogs. They looked down upon them. They despised them. That was the, the, the attitude of a Jew towards all other, all other nationalities. That's the way it was there. They despised uh, even um, the half-breed Samaritans. They despised them. They looked down at them. And so uh, even the disciples are saying to Jesus, Jesus, this woman's crying after us. And, of course, they're, they're being very prejudiced themselves. They, you know, she's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She doesn't belong here. Jesus, get her out of here. What a, what a situation this woman was in. Imagine yourself in a situation like this. In verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, Jesus answered and said, I am not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Basically, what he's telling this woman is, listen, you don't belong to the tribe of Israel. You're not an Israelite. You're not a Jew. You, I wasn't sent to the, Jew, uh, to, the, to the Gentiles. I was sent to the Jews. That's what I'm here for. You don't belong to that. And again, this woman's being pushed away. Well, in verse 25, what does she do? 
it says, then she came and she worshiped. <laughs> Boy, after feelings of rejection like she was going through, to imagine it, she still turned and continued worshiping. You know, worshiping is an act of faith. Worshiping, adoring God. And there are times when we don't understand our circumstances and it almost seems like heaven itself is rejecting us in the midst of those circumstances. Those are probably the most important times just to take time to kneel down and just begin worshiping. Just worshiping God, getting into the book of Psalms and, and reciting them before the Lord. God, you are good to Israel. And Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Forget not all of his benefits and just begin to worship God. Something happens in those times. I believe that that attitude of worship lifts us up out of our circumstances out of the situation, the, the narrowness of our ability to see things lifts us up to a place where we can literally see things the way the eternal God can see it. And we can begin to understand our situation in a whole different way. Well, this woman, it says, she began to worship. She said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Well, that wasn't even enough. In verse 26, Jesus answers and said, it's not right, it's not meat, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Oh my goodness. Not only has she been rejected by Jesus, he didn't, wouldn't even answer her to begin with. The disciples, his, the very servants of God are, are shooing us away. They're tired of hearing our complaints. And, and, and Jesus now says he doesn't even, he wasn't even sent to talk to me. I don't, I'm not on his agenda. And, and now he's telling me I'm a dog. Jesus is calling me a dog? How can that be? What kind of a church is this? I got to find some church where they preach nice things. <laughs> what a situation this woman was in. What a situation she was in. Even after worshiping, there's more rejection coming her way. He's calling her literally a dog. But this woman had already stepped out from under her circumstances. You know, I just, I want this, I'm going to just interject one verse here, if I can. We don't sometimes understand the idea of eternity. God is an eternal God. And it says in Isaiah, it says that God inhabits eternity. He's called the eternal God, our refuge. He inhabits eternity. And the way I like to see that, and I like to relate that to what I'm talking about here with this woman too, but the way I like to see God, that expression where it says he inhabits eternity, I like to think of it as like, just like what we're doing here. We're reading a story, like when we were talking about Joseph. When we read the story of Joseph, we're reading that book. We're reading Genesis. We're reading those chapters. And we can start in the beginning of Joseph's life, and we can jump all the way to the end of his life. We can even jump a little bit further and see how all that worked out to bring Israel right where they needed to be. We can see the whole picture because we're the reader of that book. We're not in the story, but we're on the outside looking at the pages of that story. And 
That's how God, who inhabits eternity, that's how he sees our life. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And he sees what we call a momentary, what we call, a, a, it seems like an eternal situation. You know, they say that if, you, if, you, if you're sitting down impatiently waiting for something and you stare at the clock, the clock actually slows down where it doesn't even move anymore. It kind of has that feeling, doesn't it? When you're staring at time and you, it doesn't seem like it's passing at all. That's how we are sometimes in our trials and situations. It seems like time isn't even passing. And, but, but to God, it's just a moment. It's just a brief passing of time. And God sees such a greater eternal picture than we can ever, ever imagine. God sees a greater picture. He sees the whole thing. And when we step out of our circumstances, especially we take time to worship, like I was sharing what this woman had done. She worshiped. When we step out of our circumstances and begin to worship the eternal God, we begin to worship the eternally wise God, the only wise God, our Savior. When we begin to worship and adore who he really is and how awesome he really is, and, and we begin to see in Psalms and throughout God's word, we begin to love the word that reveals who our eternal God really is. When we begin to worship him as we should, God can lift us up out of the pages of our situation and we can see things, or at least there's a shalom peace that can fill our hearts in the midst of those circumstances. This woman, even though in the beginning Jesus didn't answer even a word, even though the disciples seemed to reject her and have no time for her. And Jesus says, I, you're not even on my agenda. I wasn't sent to, to, the, to anyone else except to the Jews. And I wasn't sent to any Canaanite woman. So you're not on my agenda. You're not in my, my plan, my day, day planner today. I don't have time for you. And then he says, uh, not even, you know, I can't give children's bread to dogs. And all this rejection she's getting in her situation. She had knelt down and worshipped. And after hearing all that, she was able to say in verse 27, and I like the way it says here in, in the King James translation, it says, she said, truth, Lord, yet even the dogs eat, even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Recognizing, associating herself with being a dog wasn't hard for her because she'd already seen how small she was in view of how great God was. She was able to see the greater plan and she was able to have a faith to believe. In fact, her faith was so unique that Jesus had to testify about it to everyone else around him. She, he said immediately in verse 28, the moment Jesus heard those words, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you, even as thou wilt. And of course, her daughter was made whole. 
great faith. Jesus announced to everyone in that place, this woman has great faith. She was able to reach through the dispensational barrier. It wasn't the time for Gentiles. That came later on in the book of Acts. But she was able to reach past all that in her faith. Through the time she had, she came with a worshipful attitude. She was willing to associate herself with a dog. She realized, I am not worthy of anything that can happen to me. I, I'm, I'm, I don't deserve anything. I can't deserve anything, but I still believe. And that was enough to pull down the miracle that she needed for her life. Great is thy faith. It's, it's an unusual life that God's called us to. A lot of situations we can find ourselves in. But like David says in Psalms, great shalom, great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Or in other words, nothing, regardless of how great the offense, nothing can cause them to stumble. The word used there in Psalms 119 in the numerican standard is stumble. Nothing shall make them stumble. And, you know, I find it interesting going back to the story of Joseph. You know, it's interesting what Joseph tells Pharaoh. If you remember when the time came for Joseph uh, to stand before Pharaoh because somebody finally remembered that he had interpreted their dream and they told that to Pharaoh and Pharaoh had had his two dreams. So he calls for Joseph. And Joseph comes up out of prison and stands before Pharaoh. And when Joseph finds out that Pharaoh had two dreams, it's very interesting what Joseph tells Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, there's a reason why God gave you two dreams and not just one. He says, Pharaoh, the reason God gave you two dreams and not just one is because there's two things that we need to understand about this. Joseph said, first of all, God gave you two dreams to indicate that those dreams are established by God. And another reason God gave you a doubled dream or two dreams is because it's going to come about quickly. Where did Joseph get that revelation from? He literally told Pharaoh that the, one of the reasons why Pharaoh had received a doubled dream or two dreams about the same thing, because Joseph said these two dreams are about the same thing. That's what he told Pharaoh. And he said the reason why God gave you two dreams about the same thing is because, it's because it's going to come about quickly. Where did Joseph get that revelation from? If you think about his own life, it was exactly, it seemed at least up until that point, exactly the opposite. Everything else seemed to be the opposite of the dreams that Joseph himself had had. 
And it certainly didn't come about quickly. <laughs> he was he was in you know, all the things that happened to Joseph. There was quite a number of years that took place between the two dreams God gave Joseph when he was a boy and the time he had when he stood before Pharaoh. Quite a lot of time had gone by. It did not happen very quickly. So where did Joseph ever get that understanding from? That the fact that there are two dreams, it's going to come about quickly. Well, you know, the fact is this. Quickness, the quickness or the speediness that Joseph was referring to had nothing to do with man's timetable, did it? Had to do with God's timetable. Had to do with the fact that the eternal God was bringing it to pass. And in God's eyes and in God's mind, a thousand years are just like one day. You know, Paul says it like this. When we look at the eternal things, when we keep our mind on eternity. In fact, let's just look at that verse here. I'm going to just give you a few more verses in closing from the New Testament. But if we can look. Is everybody still there? Okay. Got real silent on me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at things which are, while we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen, I'm sorry, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul says, if we keep our eyes on temporary things, then our afflictions seem like they're eternal. But if we put our eyes upon the eternal things, then our, our afflictions are our light afflictions and they're just momentary. Joseph had it right. He said it's quickly going to come to pass. And for Joseph, it quickly came to pass. I believe he was able to maintain that faith all throughout those years where uh, it weren't, they weren't long, drawn-out years, but he was holding on to the promises and believing God all the way to the end. And he was able to keep his heart sweet towards those who had done such, caused such great offense towards him. He was able to go through it all and come out smelling sweet and remaining sweet towards everyone. And he was able to officially tell Pharaoh, it's going to happen right away. And of course, Pharaoh's dreams did happen right away. But time is in God's hands. And when we trust in the eternal God, he can take us through. Let me show you some atti an attitude that Paul had. And in Acts chapter 20, I'm just going to give two more verses and then we're going to pray and finish. Acts chapter 20, Paul had one determination in his life. I'm reading from the King James Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. And you know, Paul had an interesting situation take place. He had people telling him, in fact, uh, there were many 
there there was actually a prophet that came to Paul and said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, in fact, this prophet was kind of a dramatic guy. He took his belt off and tied himself up with it. And he said, uh, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what they're going to do to you. They're going to bind you up and tie you up. And then everybody said, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. In fact, there were disciples that were even saying to, speaking to him and saying, to, you know, and some of the leaders of the church were telling Paul, Paul, we don't feel you should go to Jerusalem. Some bad things are going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. But somehow Paul understood all of that differently. Whereas, you know, had we heard a message saying that if you do this, there's going to be some afflictions that come your way. Had we heard, most of us would think, well, then it must not be God's will for me to go through that. I mean, it can't be God's will for me to go to Jerusalem if they're going to bind me up and tie me up and all kinds of, you know, afflictions are going to await me, bonds and afflictions. If that's going to happen, that can't be God's will. But not Paul. Paul says this. In verse 22, Acts chapter 20, in verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So he was he was not he was not disagreeing with what these people were saying. He understood it and he knew it was the Holy Ghost telling him that if he goes to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. The only thing is, Paul knew it was the will of God for him to go to Jerusalem, and he also knew it was the will of God to, for him to go through those afflictions. So he was able to look at all of that and still choose God's will. Well, he makes this decision. And he, I, I love what it says here, and especially in the King James, it, it has uh, two words that I want to point out. In verse 24, Paul says this, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Some of the other translations don't add those two words. I don't know why, but I like it there in the King James. It says that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry he talks about also. Um, he says, I'm one goal I have for my life in spite of bonds and afflictions awaiting me. The one goal I have in my life, Paul says, is that I might finish my course with joy. And, you know, I just believe God can help us if we choose to love his word Choose to love the word of God. Make it our daily, like, like, uh, like uh, Job says. Job says, I don't know where the Lord is. I, he, he does something on the left, I can't see him. He does something on the right, I can't see him. I don't know where he's at, but he knows where I'm at. And when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And I've esteemed, Job says this in, in Job, he says, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more important than my necessary food. You know, living by the word of God, by every word that proceeds out of his mouth, loving the word of God, loving God's word. I believe doing that, it can bring light in the midst of any dark situation we find ourselves. And we can live our life and finish our course with joy. Let me just give you one word of promise from the, gospel, from the epistle of Jude, and we'll finish with this and pray. In Jude, 
just one chapter in Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. Jude, and starting with verse 20. Jude, starting with verse 20. It says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. That's a good way to worship the Lord, just praying in tongues, praying in the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, and enjoying that, that prayer, that love language with the Lord, loving Him, letting the Holy Spirit put words in our mouth as we worship God. That's a powerful thing. In fact, it says, it says this in verse and, and we build ourselves up on our most holy faith, and we also do something else. We are keeping ourselves in the love of God, it says in verse 21, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion, making a difference. In verse 23, I'm sorry, I'll skip down to verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from stumbling. Unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you without fault and blameless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Hallelujah. I believe we can, by loving God's word, praying in the spirit, becoming worshipers, we can keep ourselves, we can step out of the pages of the story of situations we're in and see our life or at least feel the peace of knowing that there's someone who sees our life and he sees the bigger picture. We can finish our course with joy, not just joy, but exceeding joy. And God can keep us from stumbling. Doesn't matter how, uh, big, the, how big the offenses are. Doesn't matter how big the situations are. In fact, sometimes it's the little stones that trip people up quicker. But you know, whenever we keep our eyes upon the Lord. He will help us to walk. He'll turn every stumbling stone into a stepping stone for our life. He'll keep us from stumbling and we'll be able to be presented before him on that day with exceeding great joy. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us these illustrations in your word that we can relate to directly. Lord, not just stories, not just history lessons, but words of life that we can relate to, that we can allow them to have entrance into our lives and they can bring light into whatever situation we're in. Father, I thank you for letting your word do that for us. I thank you for helping us in our Christian journey, in this course that we're running to be able to finish it with joy. Not just a little bit of joy, but with exceeding great joy. Father, I thank you for doing it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.